Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 530, Jason Baldwin Speaks. This week, we got to hear directly from Jason, where he gave his first-hand account of his experiences through the investigation, through the trial, in prison, and what he's been doing since he got out of prison. For the most part, the feedback on this episode has been really positive, and I think it was good for people to hear directly from Jason so you can hear the man behind the documents. You could hear his his personality. Many people commented that he just seemed so kind. And a lot of people also noted how forgiving Jason is, you know, specifically in regards to like Vicki Hutchison. And in a previous interview that I did with him, we heard a lot from Jason where he talked about, because I asked him, why aren't you mad at Jesse Miss Kelly? Why aren't you mad at Vicki Hutchison? Why aren't you mad at Michael Carson? And, and Jason has a completely different perspective than I think most of us do in the fact that he has seen the corruptness of the system. And he knows how the system can manipulate people. And he, he considers the, the West Memphis PD as well as the, the court system there as, as being the bullies that pushed a lot of these people into doing things that they otherwise may not have done. So I'm glad you guys all enjoyed the interview. I know Mike's got some questions from you guys about it. So we'll get right into it. Okay, this first one comes from Anna. She says, I think Paul Ford initially believed Jason Baldwin was guilty, even if only by association with Damien. And that's why he didn't want him to testify. Even though Jason was young back then and may not have understood the process behind a trial, Paul clearly didn't care about what his client wanted. Inexperience or incompetence? What do you think, Bob? You know, I don't know if it was necessarily either of those. I absolutely see Jason's point here. You know, he was, that's the way it's supposed to go. The attorney works for you. And, you know, he wanted to take the stand in his own defense and he wasn't able to and maybe feels that had he been able to take the stand that it would make a difference. But at the same time, you, you've, you've got to realize that, number one, it is not common to put a defendant on the stand, innocent or guilty, and it, it doesn't usually go very well. You know, and we discussed this with an interview with Damien Eccles that you're going to hear in a couple of weeks, but that probably, you know, because he did testify 
And we talked about the human nature that people have where they think you know, they're, they're sitting there listening to people from, from their perspective telling lies about them and trying to make them look guilty. And your human nature is to want to get on that stand and you want to you speak your innocence. You want people to hear from you. Uh, the reality is, though, that cross-examination, it doesn't matter if you're innocent or guilty. Cross-examination is tough and it doesn't usually go well uh, for anybody you know, on either side. So I don't think it was inexperience or incompetence for Paul Ford not to put Jason on the stand. Uh, we'll never know whether putting him on the stand would have made a difference in the trial. But Jason obviously is upset about it, and probably rightly so. For me, though, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily think it would have made a difference. And, and I really can't fault Paul Ford for not putting him on the stand for the, that exact reason, that he had enough trial experience to know that that probably would not have worked out in their favor. Okay, and also there was some talk on the fan page about why Jason's mother, who gave her son the good advice of not talking to police without a lawyer present, then tells the police there was a knife in the lake. There's something not right here. What do you make of this, Bob? Well, it all depends on how that conversation went. I doubt that if Gail Grinnell, Jason's mom, told the police that there was a knife in the lake, that she just called him up and said, hey, by the way, there's a knife in the lake. I think it would probably have more to do with you know, a conversation about a knife. Does Jason have any knives? You know, if they were, you know, because they went to his trailer, they had a warrant, they were pulling any kind of evidence, they could find everything from his, you know, they they literally took his every black t-shirt that he had. So that they could say at trial, we found 11 black t-shirts in his closet uh, as, as some sort of evidence of guilt. But so imagine in that situation where they're asking, you know, does he have any knives? And she's saying, well, no, he doesn't. But, you know, he, he did have one. He had a, a survival knife, but that he threw that in the lake. And she might have taken the opportunity to try to explain the reason for the knife being there at that time. It could have been, yeah, yeah. So there's, it, it all depends on, you know, we look at everything as though it's black and white, but really there's a, there's a lot of gray in between. We don't know. We only see the official record. We We don't even know how many times police talk to certain people you know we're looking well they spoke to this person one time there's you know and here's the interview on Callahan's but they may have spoken to him 15 other times just off the cuff undocumented conversations uh just pop-ins things like that so we don't know what led up to Gail Grinnell saying that the knife was in the lake you know if that in fact happened as, as Jason said it it did and 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 his mom had obviously told him that it did but I would guess it would be more like that you know does he have any knives I don't think so. He had one, but he threw it in the lake and maybe told the story. You know, so th there's a lot of ways that information could have came out. Okay, and D says, did Michael Carson get some kind of deal for his testimony? So he didn't specifically that I'm aware of get a deal for that testimony, meaning he didn't have any pending charges at that time. But what he did do was gain favor with the prosecution, and it did affect him in future cases. And you heard Jason mention that he was only this was only the first time that he'd done this that he'd lied on people or testified for the prosecution about some jailhouse confession and what he meant was that it happened several other times after this he became uh Michael Carson became kind of a a career criminal informant where you know every time he'd get locked up because he had a lot of issues with drug use and i think burglary and every time he'd get locked up you know he he went back to the well with the same tactic from what i've read he he did get quite a bit of favor in future sentences where he was he was given much lesser sentences or, or not served any jail or prison time for future offenses after this. Michael says, why wouldn't there be a Brady violation? 
The fact that the prosecutor got the report back on the stab wounds on the boys, and that report clearly established the fact that the knife entered as evidence could not have been the murder weapon, and this knife was part of the closing arguments, and this info was never turned over to the defense. Isn't that textbook Brady? That's exculpatory info. What do you think, Bob? It, well, if it's that simple, it would be textbook Brady. Um, but usually it's not that simple, and Brady's not as clear and concise as we might think it is. You know, you have to prove two prongs. Number one, that the, the, the evidence was exculpatory and that it was, in fact, withheld by the prosecution. And secondly, that it would be material, so meaning it would have made a, a difference in the outcome of the trial. In this particular case, I think it would be very easy to attack the material side of it, being that would it have, you know, did it create prejudice in the jury? And, and I say that because, you know, Peretti answered a lot of questions about a lot of knives and a lot of injuries. And he was able to explain to the jury that, you know, you, you can't line things up perfectly because the skin shifts and moves and bends. So, you know, you, you wouldn't be able to. Ma and, and I think he's correct to an extent, but he's also incorrect in a lot of ways. I mean, you can, you know, flatten things out, and especially when you have the body in front of you and the knife. Of course, by the time they found the knife, they didn't have the bodies anymore. But you can at least get close. And so, for example, the saw edges on the back of that knife. You know, we know that, you know, for and I don't know if this is accurate, but say they're a quarter inch teeth, you know, so they may not be in the straight line because of the 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 bend of the body or the the softness of the skin. But you should be able to look to, if you have if you have good exact measurements. And that's why you do that. We talked about this way back in, in the early episodes about how he documented each injury. If you can look and say, well, here's a series of six injuries that are a quarter inch long and they're in a perfect straight line and there's a quarter inch between them if the distance in between them maybe is a little more you can say well the skin might have flexed but uh and he wasn't able to match any of those with that knife but he did explain to the jury that the skin moves and things so it would be easy to make the argument that while uh that information uh maybe was withheld that it wasn't material because if the jury had heard that knife didn't match these wounds it wouldn't have made a difference because the expert didn't say that the knife did match the wounds. And in fact, he said you couldn't tell because of the flexibility of the skin. So it, it, it's on, on paper, it looks like it's probably textbook Brady, but really it, it probably wouldn't be. It probably wouldn't hold up in and of itself. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Mallory says, Did Jason ever file a claim for ineffective assistance of counsel? The lawyer had people to testify on Jason's behalf and didn't use them. She says, I kind of feel like the jury had made up their mind and it wasn't going to matter, but still the lawyer could have done more, or maybe it's all in hindsight. He did file an ineffective assistance of counsel claim. 
everybody did and everybody does. It's just it's called when you hear people talking about the Rule 37 hearings, uh, that's what that is, where you're filing that you're asking for a new trial because your trial lawyer didn't do a good enough job. So uh, Jason did. And, you know, at the end of the day, when we got to the Alfred plea, all of these things, you know, maybe not one of them might have been it made a huge difference. I think we mentioned this before, but when you take in the preponderance of all of these different issues, uh, including you know, not calling any alibi witnesses and all these things, uh, they they all kind of stack up and 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 start to build a case all together. But yes, he did file that claim just as well as everybody else did. And again, that's one of the first steps in post conviction work. Once you're convicted uh, with three direct appeals and then after is to file what's called the Rule 37 in Arkansas, which is uh, an ineffective assistance of counsel claim. Kristen says, I read somewhere, can't remember where at the moment, that the DA offered the three convicted a nolo contender plea with time served to begin with, but that the three wanted to maintain their innocence so their attorneys countered with the Alford plea. Is this true? You know, I don't I don't know. I've, I've read that somewhere, too, but I've never seen any documentation to support that. And a lot of times you wouldn't, even if it did, you wouldn't know because the, a lot of these are verbal negotiations back and forth between defense attorneys and prosecutors. You know, there's no official record or official plea deal that's put out there. So it may have happened. To be honest, I kind of doubt it, you know, because the Alfred plea was the idea of the defendant's own attorneys. You know, they suggested it that we could do an Alfred plea. And real quick, while we're talking about the Alfred plea process, we have a question here from Jennifer about the show The Staircase. And I know you said you just watch it. So I'm curious about your thoughts regarding her question. Okay, what you got? She writes, so I was watching TV the other night, and just so happens I decided to watch The Staircase. Michael Peterson, obviously a man of some wealth, hired a jury consultant, Dr. Henry Lee, was called on to defend the falls. The mock jury pretty much completely discarded his testimony for, one, not giving another interpretation, and two, they couldn't understand him. If you've watched the show, you know Dr. Spitz, who testified in the West Memphis 3 case, is on the same show. He's also very difficult to understand. Could it be that some of the West Memphis three jurors felt the same way about Spitz and discarded his expert testimony as well? I never stopped to consider that possibility, but Mr. Peterson's attorneys kept saying, quote, it's the South. They can't understand him and everything here is different. Well, Arkansas is definitely the South. So what are your thoughts? Now, Bob, real quick, Spitz didn't actually testify at the West Memphis three trials, but you were just telling me the other day that we could learn a lot from the staircase. So what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's a really well-produced uh, docu-series, and you know, it was produced, I think, the first half of it uh, years ago, and then there are these new episodes. But if you go on to Netflix, there's the entire, I think it's 13 episodes altogether. So spoiler alert, you might want to skip ahead a little bit because I'm going to give away some things if you don't already know about this case. But yeah, I, I, I do think there's a lot to learn from the the staircase case, which was Michael Peterson's alleged murder of his wife, Kathleen. I think I believe her name was Kathleen Peterson. I guess first to hit on Jennifer's questions, um, yeah, like you said, Spitz did not actually testify at the West Memphis State trials. He he gave testimony through the Rule Thirty Seven hearings and post conviction work. So he was he came in years later to look at the case. But some of the lessons that we can learn from the staircase documentary is, and like I said, it was really well produced is the difference in a trial when you're dealing with a defendant who has money. Uh, and so just the the mock jury that she just mentioned there. So so this is the kind of money that Michael Peterson had during the preparation for trial. In his case, they had these experts come in, Henry Lee, uh, who does blood spatter, and then Dr. Warner Spitz, who we all know from this case and several other cases, John Bonnet Ramsey and, and other ones, to talk about the the autopsy to look at the nature of the wounds. 
And they were they brought in, I think they said during the documentary, it was like $30,000 they were going to spend to assemble a mock jury and have them hear their testimony to see how well it went over. And they had this issue where they couldn't quite understand them. And, and that was part of it. But the other part of it is when they when they pulled those jurors and asked them why they didn't hold it in much regard, uh, it was because they didn't give an alternate theories. So which is really how expert testimony should work. You know, Henry Lee went over the blood spatter. And, you know, the prosecution was alleging that the Michael Peterson's wife died from blunt force trauma in, in his analysis during the, the mock trial in front of the our testimony in front of the jury, the mock jury. He said that, you know, the blood spatter doesn't support that. And, and I want to point out here, first of all, I'm not here to get an argument on Michael Peterson's innocence or guilt. I have no idea if he's innocent or guilty. You know, I've seen the documentary, obviously, and have some opinions. But as we all know that, you know, there could be a lot more to that story than was in the documentaries. But, you know, he was pointing out things like the prosecution was alleging that Michael Peterson took some sort of, you know, they, they claimed some kind of blow poke or something and was hitting her over the head multiple times and she was bleeding. And Henry Lee is saying that, well, there's, you can look at the blood spatter, you should have what's called cast off, which means you hit her and there's blood all over your weapon. When you bring the weapon back to hit her again, there should be a streak of blood spatter up the wall and ceiling from where you wound back up and then struck again. And then you wind back up and strike again, then wind back up and strike again. There should be these strips of blood spatter on on the walls and ceiling called cast off from the weapon that wasn't present on this crime scene. The mock jury, it didn't resonate with them because they said, well, they didn't give an alternate theory. You know, they they wanted him to say what actually happened was this. But Henry Lee, you know, through his expertise and testifying, in my opinion, properly, is you know, you're that's not that's not their job is to have a theory of what happened. They can only analyze the evidence. You know, and he got asking questions like, you know, is this more consistent with a fall? Um, and, and I think they did modify his testimony before they got to trial. Uh, in this case, you know, there was there was what there was blood spatters. They were all up the wall, not in a cast off pattern, but in a, in a different, more odd pattern that the prosecution was alleging was from, you know, the, the strikes from whatever the murder weapon was. And Henry Lee, in my opinion, accurately so described what, you know, what maybe hadn't been thought of was that. When you're hitting the head like that and you start to bleed internally and you cough, you know, I've had the unfortunate experience as a firefighter several times to deal with people with blunt force trauma, whether it's not necessarily from, uh, you know, a murder or anything like that, but, you know, falling down the stairs or in a car accident or wrecking a motorcycle and, and they gag and cough and do what we call agonal respirations and there's blood just spewing everywhere when that happens. And so he was explaining that it was, you know, as, as she was laying there and coughing, that it would it would send these spatters up the wall. But so I, I, I'm, I'm kind of going on a tangent. As you can tell, I really enjoyed that the documentary because more so because I think it gave us such a great insight into indefinite spoiler alert here. So jump ahead, if, ahead a little bit if you don't hear this in post-conviction work. And when we're looking at this case, the West Memphis 3 case, and when they decided to take the Alford plea and why they would do that, you get this great look at Michael Peterson's ordeal and innocent or guilty. It's a 15-year process. So and just imagine for a second that maybe he was innocent and, and it was a fall down the stairs. There was no murder. There was no blunt force trauma. His wife dies. He spends two years, uh, you know, he gets arrested, gets on a bond, then goes to a trial. The trial lasts four or five months, ends up convicted, and they file direct appeals immediately. Eight years go by before finally the conviction is vacated and a new trial is ordered. 
Uh, and that was based on, coincidentally, blood spatter analysis uh, was a big part of it because the state's expert was proven to be, and, and you know, people always make this argument, well, they're being paid by so-and-so or paid by so-and-so, so their testimony is not relevant. Um, but the blood spatter expert who worked for the SBI who testified, turns out that there were several other convictions that were thrown out. I think there were the, the other SBI agents that testified in the post-conviction hearings that five different cases were directly related to him where he didn't disclose documentation uh, that he should have or reports that weren't helpful to the prosecution, that he he lied and perjured himself on the stand and basically would just do whatever he had to do to make the prosecution's case, conduct experiments that were just done completely wrong and were only designed to prove the prosecution's case, not to figure out what actually happened. And so eight years after prison, 10 years after Kathleen Peterson's death, the conviction is vacated and he's ordered a new trial. Then five more years go by and there's all these different hearings here and there. He's on house arrest for a big part of this time. And they, they, they file motions to drop the charges. They're trying to test new evidence. And then what ultimately ends up, and again, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, in an Alfred plea in Michael Peterson's case. Now, my, again, my point here is not to argue whether he's innocent or guilty. That's not, the, that's not the point at all. The point is to watch that process from either side, how long it takes. And the documentarians did a great job of following along with Michael Peterson himself his family, his kids, and the emotional toll it takes in the amount of years, you know, five years after his convictions vacated, he's on the eve of trial before they finally uh, resolved it in an Alfred plea. And you get to see that decision-making process. So I think we can learn a lot from the staircase as far as how post-conviction relief works and the emotional toll that it takes. And also the difference when you have money and when you don't have money. You know, during the first trial, he had all the money in the world and could afford this great defense and all these experts and the mock jury. When he got out eight years later, he's indigent, he's broke, and and they were they were much more hamstrung, the attorneys, and what they could do, and then ended up with the Alfred plea. So if you haven't seen it, uh, sorry, I might have just ruined some of it for you, but uh, go check out The Staircase. And that, that was a good question. And like I said, you know, it, it wasn't particularly relevant because Spitz didn't testify at trial, so that language barrier didn't make that big of a difference, but it, it very well could have, you know, and then there's also the prejudice that no one wants to believe is out there that if it's a cop or an expert put on by the prosecution, the jury just tends to naturally believe them because they're the good guys. In fact, the the prosecutor in the staircase case, in Michael Peterson's case, said in her closing arguments, you know, you can, you can believe, and that's part of why the conviction got thrown out, because that guy's testimony that was, was, was perjured she had, in closing arguments, said, you know, this guy, they're trying to claim this, that, and this, and they can bring in whatever expert, but this guy is legitimate. He works for us, and you can trust him. And that's exactly how most jurors think. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. 
Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, and Jennifer says, where's the original interview with Jason Baldwin that you did back in December? So many of you may have noticed that the interview we heard is not the first interview that I've done with Jason. You heard him mention about the time when I was in Austin with him. And you are absolutely going to hear that interview because a few people asked about that too. It's coming. It'll be coming after the break. For starters, I wanted to do something a little more concise. It's a long, long interview that we did down in Texas. And it gets into a lot of things that we want to be talking about after the break when we get into the investigation of new suspects. And it, it what didn't exactly have the content what I wanted to talk about as we're kind of wrapping this thing up about the whole firsthand trial experiences. And again, there's there's parts of that full interview that we did in Austin that are going to be much more applicable to the case once we come back from our break and we're launching into the new investigation. Uh, and I can't get into much more detail than that, but one of the questions was, are we ever going to hear it? Yes, you are absolutely going to hear it. It'll be after the break. Uh, and it's an awesome, great interview, but it'll be much more fitting then. Okay, and along the lines of the new investigation, a few people want to know who Jason Baldwin might think committed these murders. Jason doesn't know. I I, I will say that, and because I've asked him that. And you remember way back, before we even started recording the podcast, when we were speaking with, with Jason and John Harden, when we asked them about this, if, you know, if they have any any indications who they think might might have done it, and they were able to point us in direction of, you know, some some angles we might want to investigate and things. But Jason was very clear that he's like, I have no opinion and very strongly pointed out that that's what got him into this mess. He's he's not about to uh, go accusing anyone of committing these murders without evidence, because like he said, that's that's what happened to him. And so, you know, I, I'm sure he probably maybe has some ideas or hypotheses, but He's not about to make any of those public. That's not the right way to put it. Not just making them public, but bring that kind of attention on somebody. Right. He's not going to accuse somebody of something without any evidence because he's he's been a had a direct effect of that. So I've never heard Jason say he suspects a particular individual. Nothing like that. All all he said is you know what he knows is that it wasn't him, and he wants to find out who did it, and he's willing to help in any way that he can to figure out who actually did it, but he's not about to throw around accusations. Okay, and then Rob says, the recent episodes regarding Jason left out what I think, if not a key bit of information, at least an important talking point. On May 4th, the day before the murders, Jason traded some t-shirts to Billy Newell for an ice axe and a throwing knife. A few days later, he went to trade them back. What do you make of this, Bob? Well, there's a couple things. There was So that information came out, it was early, I want to say like around the 11th, of May, Billy Newell went to the police. I didn't see in the report or his statement that it said he traded it back. Uh, he had said something about the fact that he had traded it to Jason, and then uh, I'm trying to remember exactly what the report said. But it, it was it was a throwing knife and a pick. It said in the in the report, it just says pick. I don't know if that's an ice pick or what it is, but uh, that's what's in the police files as far as the statement that he gave. And he says that he saw it and thought, man, I wonder if that's the murder weapon. And they called the police and turn that information into the police 
here's the thing. I mean, given the timing of it, it probably did happen that he traded it and then gave it back or for whatever reason. I've never heard the whole thing laid out as far as exactly what happened with it. And I'll have to ask Jason about it because I actually didn't realize it that that even happened until I saw his Facebook post there. But here's the thing. For anybody that's ever had a throwing knife or a set of throwing knives, they're not sharp. Number one, they're definitely not serrated. Two, they're not sharp at all. They're blunt. Throwing knives, like I did used to have a couple of sets of those as a kid. And they're like solid steel, so nothing can break off of them. They obviously have a point on the end, so when you throw them, they'll stick into things. But the edges, they're like, they look like they're double-edged knives, but the edges aren't sharp at all. They're, they're blunt. They're not made to cut. They're meant to throw. People don't believe there was any animal predation, that this was done with knives. But I don't think there's anybody out there making the argument that those injuries were inflicted by a dull throwing knife with no serrated edges. So, it, I mean, it's, it's completely irrelevant as far as I'm concerned. What about an ice axe? And I, well, he said axe there, but it says pick in okay. the, and, and again, that's an ice pick. For those of you that don't know what an ice pick is, it's just basically a sharp pointed object. And again, there's that, there would be definite signs of that. So we have all these cuts. And again, one of the reasons that Werner Spitz's testimony or his, or his evaluation resonates with me is you see all these cuts on the surface of the bodies, but you don't see the corresponding injuries on the bone underneath that you would see with a with a, an actual stabbing. So now with a knife, you might be able to say, well, maybe they're just scraping. You know, I think if any, for anybody that saw the the press conference with Warner Spitz, it's on YouTube. I think he he says, take a knife and take the back of a knife or the straight edge of a knife and just scrape somebody like this with it and not cut them. It's ridiculous. Uh, I also agree it's ridiculous, but you know, you can at least explain that. But with a an ice pick, there's only one way to use an ice pick, and that's a stab with it. And there's not a single injuries on on any of the boys that was deep enough to be a stab wound from anything. There's not any corresponding bone injuries underneath the cuts. There's no pointed stab wounds like that, and none of them are deep. So if there was a knife used, I mean, it was literally used to just graze and cut along the skin carefully enough to not injure the bone tissue underneath, but definitely not an ice pick. This next one comes from Corpus Delicit Pod on Twitter. Hey, Bob, got a theory slash question that's been on my mind for a while. The two camps assume the three are guilty or the three are innocent, but why does it have to be all three or nothing? What if Damien and Jason are innocent and Jesse isn't? He gets pulled in and here's they're looking at a Damien and he realizes he can pin it on them. Could possibly be why his confession was still a mess, but also had some hints of truth and also why there were later confessions. Is this plausible or no? I don't think so. We talked about this in a follow-up a couple of weeks ago. It just, I can't figure out any scenario where that makes sense. You know, why... I mean, I mean, Jesse's confession could be for whatever reason, because, you know, I, I think that, well, I'll say in my opinion, it's 100 percent a false confession. He's demonstrated never has he demonstrated any knowledge of this crime, any firsthand knowledge. But then to make it Damien and Jason, like, it's, you know, his interviews start off with him you know, telling police that he's heard a rumor that it was Damien, but it would, he heard a rumor that it was Damien and Robert Birch. And then, you know, obviously the police bring Jason into it. So then he ropes Jason into it. So you could say maybe Jesse has nothing to do with it, but it was Damien and Jason. But then go to them. There's no case against them either. You know, there, there's there's all sorts of people that say they were in all sorts of other places besides the crime scene. Nobody says they were at the crime scene except Jesse. So if Jesse wasn't at the crime scene and, and you you would agree that it's a false confession and it was the other two, well, then that means no one saw them at the crime scene. There's no physical evidence of them being at the crime scene. You just watch the house of cards crumble 
no matter which direction you try to go with this. There's just there's no way, in my opinion, to put any of them there. And if you take Jesse out of the equation, there's definitely nothing against the other two. You put him back in and say it was maybe it was just Jesse and not Damien and Jason. You know, for him to him to pull, you know, why not say it was him and Robert Birch and Damien? You know, if he was going to falsely confess or or why bring those other people in instead of just saying it was just those two? It, there's just there's just no way to to make that work, in my opinion. All right, our last question here. Rebus says, "Can you give us an update on Ed and Kim? It's getting closer to the end of June, and we were all excited to hear about Ed. Thank you so much for what you do." Yeah, Ed's not going home at the end of June. Uh, he's getting closer. I think that, as a matter of fact, I think Kim responded to that post, and I had spoken with Kim a couple weeks ago, or Ed a couple of weeks ago. The class was delayed because of the lockdown. The class started. I think he's finished a good portion of it now. And then I think there's another two-week class he has to take, uh, which is a final. So he's ahead of schedule from the class. But they're not doing the classes over, I think, the 4th of July holiday. So I think our best estimate right now is that he'll be released probably the end of July or the first part of August. Um, so we're we're probably about a month away. Um, not that I want Ed to be in prison one minute longer than he has to be, but I'm pulling for the beginning of August because it just so happens that the last week of July, I'm going to be not just on vacation with my family for our summer vacation, but we're going to be in an RV traveling. You know, I, I'm going to be in a campground in Yellowstone National Park, and we're only going to get like maybe 24 hours notice when Ed gets released. So it's not like I can just you know leave Becky and the kids with the RV and find an airport and jump on a plane. So. Uh, I'd like to be there when he walks out, but uh, everything's doing really well. Ed is, I haven't spoken with him in about a week or two, but his spirits are super duper high. He can't wait to get home. Kim and the kids are super excited for Ed to come home and they're going to be starting their new life together starting in, in about a month. That's really exciting news. All right. That's going to do it for this week's follow-up. Yep. That'll do it. And I hope you guys are all looking forward to this week's episode. That's going to come out in just two days. And that is an interview with Jesse, Miss Kelly's attorney, the one who took the so-called Bible confession from Jesse, Mr. Dan Stidham. And it's going to be really good. And then also want to let you guys know, as far as all of you that follow along on social media, that I have started using Instagram. And I haven't quite got it figured out yet, but for, uh, that is a lot of more personal stuff and show stuff. It gets mixed up, but it's definitely less polished than our other social media stuff. But anyway, if you want, if you're on an Instagram and you want to follow along with what we're doing, you can do that at Truth Justice Pod on Instagram. Other than that, I hope you enjoy the interview with Dan Stidham on Sunday, and we'll talk to you guys next week. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer of Willow Photo and Designs for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And a special thanks to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And also a big thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. 
To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month. And we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation in the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at truthjusticepod. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Did you change the title of, of the episode? I did, I did. Okay. Yeah. Just wondering. Yeah. I just I had in mind Jason Baldwin speaks, and when you published it, you made like interview with Jason Baldwin. Right. Did you change the description too? I don't think so. I think I added some hashtags. Okay. But no. Just wondering. Yeah. Sorry about you. Did a great job. Pronounce that. Corpus delicit. This next one com- This next one comes from Corpus delicit on Twitter. That's not how you pronounce that, you idiot. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> Set me up for that. No, I don't. <laughs> I gave Mike a haircut yesterday. You already told him that. Did I? Yeah. And you wore a hat instead of letting people see how awesome it was. I always wear a hat. It just so happens that... Uh, Be- beginning of August. Okay. <laughs> I'm pulling for the... Shut up. Don't get so excited because I screwed up. You screwed up bad. <laughs>